Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's late December 2020, a year to the day I sat down with Lisa's father, Don Young. I've just gotten off the phone with a man who may hold critical information about the disappearance of Don's daughter. He tells me he is walking around downtown Nanaimo with a videotape and a hair sample. But before I explain who this man is and why his information could be the break this case has needed for 18 years, I'm going to back up and tell you a bit more about this man, this man named Bob and how I came to know him. A few months ago, I drove across the island once again to meet with a source. I was about to come face to face with a man who will tell me he will take me to the place where he believes Lisa Marie Young died. It's bright and sunny near the end of summer. The ocean sparkles as I make my way down the coast. Lisa's hometown of Nanaimo is a port city. For a time, it was described as the heroin capital of Canada. In the mid-1990s, the Washington Post published a story about Nanaimo with the headline, Idyllic Canadian City, a Gateway for Drugs. The man I'm going to meet was once at the center of Nanaimo's drug scene, a self-described successful drug dealer at the time Lisa went missing. I'm Laura Palmer, This is Where is Lisa, Season 1 of Island Crime, Episode 9, Bob's Story. of organized crime involvement have come up repeatedly during my investigation of Lisa's disappearance. Lisa's father, Don Young, was approached by someone he believes was a member of the Hells Angels with an offer to help. The fact that Lisa's body has never been found could lend credence to the idea that someone involved knew what they were doing. And sources have also told me Lisa may have owed money to a gang. When I ask police about gang involvement, I get a kind of non-answer. They will not confirm or deny the possibility. To date, I have spoken with three experts on gang activity in an attempt to understand what, if any connection, Lisa's disappearance could have to organized crime. One of those I speak with on background expresses serious doubt about Hell's Angels' involvement. 
They tell me it would be extremely unusual for the Hells Angels to order a hit on a young woman like Lisa. The higher-ups wouldn't tolerate it. I don't have anything solid enough. What I have feels too speculative to publish. Still, so many people involved with Lisa's story seem to have connections with the drug trade. Bob was a key figure in Nanaimo's drug scene back when Lisa disappeared. The name Bob surfaces for me for the first time online. He writes, There was a lot of things in that podcast that stood out for me. I knew all the players back then and knew exactly who they were talking about when they couldn't reveal their identities. I hope they can find and charge those who are responsible. I begin messaging back and forth with Bob. Shortly after that, Bob's name comes up again. This time, it is Lisa's father, Don Young, who raises Bob's name to me. At that point, I've been speaking with a private investigator, and he asks me to facilitate a conversation with Don. When I do, the first question the PI asks Don is this. If there was one person you could speak with about what happened to Lisa, who would it be? Hey, my name's Bob. Um, I've known um, Don for um, many years, decades probably. Um, but, uh, you know, we've known each other a long time and uh, I've considered him a friend. I meet Bob at Summer's End. It's during the pandemic and as much as possible, I'm conducting interviews outside. Not great for sound, but safer than conducting a lengthy interview in my vehicle. We sit on a piece of grass near a duck pond. It's a very pretty spot, filled with young families and people out for a stroll with their dogs. Bob has arrived in an older model blue van. He looks nothing like the man whose social media profile picture shows a bandana-wearing tough guy astride a Harley. Bob is wearing his hair trimmed, closely shaved to his head. He is casually dressed in shorts and a short-sleeved t-shirt, exposing a massive tattoo of an elephant. He has piercing eyes and is still handsome, despite clearly having lived a tough life. Bob and Lisa's father, Don Young, were colleagues at Perlator, working as couriers at the time Lisa went missing in 2002. But Bob's drug use is already spiraling out of control. Unfortunately, back then, uh, I started to um, develop a dependency to uh, drugs. You know, I, I got uh, introduced to crystal methamphetamines and um, started um, that uh, uh, dependency to that and and was using lots back then and uh, burning the candle at both ends and eventually it ended up my uh, my job attendance and, and work started to suffer. And um, after several warnings from the company, uh, they finally let me go, I think, in, um, I think it was 2003. Bob tells me his new job as a drug dealer brings him into close contact with a circle of criminals, including one of the men who is believed to be involved in Lisa's disappearance. 
and you know, I made the mis- I made the decision that when my drug use was starting to become a financial burden, that I would start to sell it to try and uh, ease the financial pressure that it was causing. And uh, so I started to I got to know a lot of people in that world, you know, in the drug dealing, drug using world. Being a drug dealer of that, then I got to know all these people, and there were, you know, there were um, one of those. Um, he, um, you know, he uh, he used it, and um, I always tried to stay away from him. He was uh, not, he was well feared back then. Probably is still to this day. We just didn't want to deal with him, and he dealt, he also dealt in, in drugs too. But I would never buy off him because, you know, if you owed him money, he owed you. You know, I was, I was steered away from people like him who I know that, um, you know, I, I didn't want to be under their control. Because once, once that happens, then, yeah, you know, they, your life is owned by them. You have to do what they say when they say something, right? So, uh, yeah, he was a pretty scary dude back then. I press Bob for more on this man I have heard so much about since beginning to investigate Lisa's case. Bob tells me he tried to avoid having anything to do with this guy, but that wasn't always possible. But sometimes he'd just show up at my door, you know, and he just never refused to mention, say, no, go away. You don't say that to You know, he'd come in and uh, he knew that I dealt in, in um, Crystal. So, you know, he says, you know, he got a bump, he's a couple bumps back then lay up a line and smell sort of thing, you know, and yeah, you never refused them, you know, you just complied. Eventually, Bob moves from having a side hustle as a drug dealer to getting deeper and deeper involved in the scene. You know, I, I was no longer capable of paying the mortgage, so the house went after that, you know, so I lost the house, lost, lost the job, lost the house, domino effect kind of came rolling in, already addicted to crystal method at that time and and um kind of uh just took on the uh, attitude like you know screw it that everything's gone now so why stop here just went into it i just took the drug dealing thing full on you know and became a very um, noticeable figure in the drug trade industry in the nine well known by the police I ask Bob to take me back to the time when Lisa goes missing, to describe just what is happening in his life. Back then, I, I, I still owned that house, and I was still working at Pure Later, you know. But I was I was battling this addiction to crystal methamphetamine at the time, and it was starting to interfere in my work, you know, and my life. And but I was I was trying to keep it together. I had. Um, couple of young girls that, well, not young, I guess they were in their 20s or whatever, that uh, were friends. That was, I had a basement suite in the house that they, they uh, that introduced me to, they used to go out and like to party at the bars, you know, do dance and whatever at the local clubs. Like the, um, there was the, uh, the press room. There was the one that uh, Lisa was last seen in, was it the jungle, I think it was, you know, and, uh, and that, and we used to frequent those bars a lot. When I would, my dad, I got the weekends off, so I would go down Friday night, Saturday night, and kind of party with them, and got to know a lot of the people. Like that Dallas guy, I, I knew him. He came to my place, and um, we. I used to know Dallas because he used to walk on his hands a lot, 
that's how people know him. You'd see him outside the bar and he'd be like doing handstands and walking on his hands. Right? And uh, yeah, he was he was a well-known person back then. He was, he was a good character. He was a good guy. And like I, I dealt in the crystal meth and, and some some of them did that. Not all, not a lot of them. They were more into the snorting the cocaine thing or the ecstasy thing. What was going on? It was big back then. You know, the party type drugs. Bob is very much a part of the scene back in the day, hanging with people like Dallas Holly, the friend Lisa called for help the night she disappeared, going to some of the same clubs Lisa went out to. I ask Bob to reflect on exactly what he hears after Lisa goes missing. Has Don worked at Pure later, you know, and he was, he was very concerned over her disappearance. You know, he used to have a um, picture of her on the back of his van, uh, you know, missing and phone his number, you know, have any information and stuff. And like I say, at first, all, the, all that we ever heard was about the guy in the Jag who was last seen with him. And then uh, somebody came up to me and he says, you, if you're, you know, and I, I, want, I took a real interest in it for Don's so sake. Somebody came up to me and uh, who I knew back then and uh, filled me in on, on what really happened to him. What he said really happened to me. Not somebody I really want to mention, but uh, but this but the things that you wrote or did that day, fellow, in your podcast, exactly, exactly what I had heard. And then Bob tells me a very similar story to the one my source Dave described in an earlier episode. He tells me Lisa was taken to a place where phony snuff films were being made. Something goes sideways and Lisa dies. Whereas Lisa will be right back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. Bob is working the recovery program of a reformed addict. You can hear him acknowledging his responsibility for the bad choices he made in life. It's been more than a dozen years since Bob was a crystal meth addict, but he still has the hoarse, raspy voice which other addicts I have known suffer from after years of abuse. Today, Bob has reason for optimism. He has a full-time job driving a truck. He is saving to buy a home once again before he retires. Like Dave, the criminal turned Christian you heard earlier in this series, I believe Bob sincerely wants to help if he can. Back then, Dave was known as Boxer Dave and Bob was Purilator Bob. Two well-known criminals at the center of Nanaimo's criminal life. Now, changed men, both stepping up to help. And so when Bob offers to take me to the spot where he believes Lisa's life ended, I agree to go along. Bob climbs in the back of my vehicle 
and we begin to drive to where he tells me Lisa Marie Young perished. Yeah, we're, we're getting really close here. Let's keep going a little bit further. There's a set of four houses here, and, and um, she, she was, as, far, as I remember correctly, she was in the fourth house. We pull up in front of a large two-story beige house built in the 1990s. The half-acre property backs onto a sanctuary. Places I remember was that place right there. Yeah. Bob, can you describe this house to me? Um, I've never been inside it myself, but uh, people who have said that uh, when you walked in the entrance, because apparently ran a, a hairdressing business out of this house, and you walked when you walked into it, you um, it was full of mirrors, and some of them were two-way mirrors. As I understand it, this is where the snuff films were being made, and this is where Lisa met her demise. Those mirrors Bob refers to, he will later explain, are used by the owner of the home to blackmail married men she seduces when they come to her hair salon. Pretty wild stuff. From what I heard, she, uh, first of all, she was taken and buried in a shallow grave somewhere back in that park. And when I heard this, I actually went up into the park and I started looking around. Of course, you know, it's a very vast place. I didn't really, I was looking for some, some maybe some newly churned dirt or something. I thought maybe I might get lucky and find her, but, um, but I never did. And then shortly after that, this when I heard they moved their body up to a location up in Nanaimo Lakes, by Nanaimo Lakes. And I think that's when phone Dawn in a panic, saying they're moving her body and you need to get on this sort of thing. It's funny, um, in all the stories I'd heard, I pictured something, um, I guess, more down on its luck. This is a very, um, well, it's a, be- it's a beautiful area. The homes are large, and I guess I would describe them as upscale. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's just really not, it's not at all what I had, had pictured. Like the videotapes, Lisa's body being moved is one of those strange pieces of information that comes up again and again. The fact that Don remembers getting a frantic phone call at the time about Lisa being moved, a call he took seriously, has lent credibility to what would otherwise be the stuff of urban legends. Can I just get you to tell me what it is you're about to show me on your phone. What what this is, is this space? This is what I heard her final resting place ended up being. And um, so I've actually marked it with a marker there. And um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up the satellite image. And okay, so now then, if you go down the, the main highway, the number one highway, which is this one here, there's a turnoff, I think it's called Christie Road. Just before you hit the town of Ladysmith, this is the road right here. It's Gruel Road. So you turn right off of Gruel, and then you turn onto Christie Road here. And it kind of follows the highway, like here. Okay, there's Christie Road there. Now right here, 
there's a, these are rental units. It, it, at one time, I think the highway used to come close to this, and these used to be a motel. And uh, but now they they rent they are they're just rental units. And um, from what I understand, somewhere in this area, there's an abandoned mine shaft that uh, they, they used to call the bottomless hole. That's what I heard is they ended up dumping their body down this, what they called the bottomless hole, this abandoned mine shaft. There- a mine shaft, a well, a cave. As I've talked to people about Lisa's case, a number of different places have been suggested as spots where Lisa's remains could be hidden. This is the most specific description I've heard to date. I would sure like to see go and get some closure and uh, and the people responsible to be accountable, but um, I mean, it's been a long time. Bob was upfront about his criminal record, which I'm able to confirm. And it also checks out with how Don Young described Bob back in the day. I believe Bob when he tells me he knew the people who are alleged to have been there the night Lisa disappeared. His descriptions and first-hand accounts have the ring of truth. And then, a few months later, I get a message. The police are searching that property Bob took me to. This is the property Nanaimo RCMP officers spent yesterday searching. Police aren't saying what they were looking for, but confirmed the search was in relation to the disappearance in 2002 of 21-year-old Lisa Young. Reporter Kendall Hansen breaks the story. Pictures show about a dozen authorities involved in a search of the area, around this home, and in behind in the sanctuary. The home now belongs to new owners, and I'm told they are completely caught off guard when police asked to do a new search. None of the neighbors were willing to go on camera, but one neighbor recalls seeing what looked like a body in a hammock in the backyard of 827 Nanaimo Lakes Road around the time that Lisa Young went missing. Soon after, he says he saw equipment moving a lot of soil around in the backyard. He says he reported this to police at the time. A cadaver dog named Luca is brought in as well. Lisa's friend Cindy brings donuts to thank the police for searching and a dog toy for Luca. Bob was right about this home being linked to Lisa's disappearance. But I'm still struggling with the whole filmmaking part of the story. Early on, Kendall Hansen told me this aspect of Lisa's tale has been circulating for years. Kendall believes it. And it squares with the story I was told by Dave. But the snuff film angle still feels off to me. Urban legends about snuff films have been around since the 70s. Snopes describes itself as the oldest and largest fact-checking site online. They have a whole section on snuff films. Even trying to make a fake snuff film seems so risky, as does the distribution. I'm just having a hard time believing this is why the group were gathered together the night Lisa vanished. But then, I'm sent a startling picture. Bob has found a tape of some kind and a small plastic bag of hair. I phone him immediately.
hello, is this Bob? Yes, it is. Oh, hi, Bob. It's Laura Palmer calling. We, we met a few months back. Oh, yes, I remember you, yeah. I asked Bob to tell me about what he has found. Well, years ago, when all this went down, when Lisa disappeared and stuff, I had this uh, dealings with this lady, and I don't even remember what her name was, but I remember she had lupus. And so we used to call her Lupus Laura, or whatever her name was, right? And uh, she gave me this tape. Because everybody back then knew that I had an interest in finding out what happened to Lisa, because I worked up here later. I was a friend of Dawn, and, you know, and I was poking my nose around and finding out anything that I could. And she gave me this tape. And it came with a hair sample. She claimed was Lisa. And she says there was evidence on this tape that uh, implicated somebody on her disappearance or had something to do with her disappearance, right? So I took the tape and I, and I viewed it. And I thought it was a VCR tape. Like, I'm not even sure if the tape I have is the, the one that I had back then because... But what I remember, it was a VCR tape that she had to me, although I could be wrong. I mean, it was 20 years, going on 20 years ago now. And uh, I remember watching it, and uh, I didn't see anything on this tape that implicated anybody. It was like a homemade funnel tape that was kind of distasteful, and I didn't even watch it to the end because I, just, I watched it for a while and I can't handle this anymore, and I turned it off. And then stuck the tape and the hair sample away, right? Is it possible this rumored tape really exists? Is it possible this tape has been buried in Bob's belongings all these years? He tells me he was sorting through some of his things when he stumbled across the tape. Yeah, and uh, I thought, Jesus, it had the tear sample. I'm thinking, I wonder if this is that tape, right? It's not what I remember, because I thought it was a VCR tape that one I viewed. But the fact that it came with this hair sample, it seems kind of weird. So I'm just thinking, I don't know, it might be the same one. It might have something to do with this. I don't know. I figure it's a long shot at that. In the picture Bob has sent, I can't quite make out what kind of tape it is. I ask him to describe what I assume is a VCR cassette. No, it's one of those old Sony 8mm, I think, tapes. I don't think they even make the... um, thinking anymore where you 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 had like a a camcorder type thing oh you know because because remember back then they um you know the um if you wanted to make a tape i guess or a movie or whatever you know they the vcr tapes were so big and bulky they sony came out i think with sony anyway it came out with this camcorder thing and it had a smaller tape and that's what this is i know exactly what bob is talking about I owned one of those camcorders. I still have it. I asked Bob to try to recall as best he can what he viewed on the tape all those years ago. It looks like whoever took the tape, the couple that, that made the tape, um, did it alone. They looked, they probably had the camera on um, on the bed that they were in, on a tripod or whatever, because it, it, it's the... It, There was no movement of the camera. It's all a picture of them from the foot of the bed. And and was was Lisa on the tape? I I don't. I never got a chance to see who the woman was because I couldn't see 
it never showed her face really, you know. So I couldn't, I couldn't say who the, I couldn't didn't recognize the people in the tape, and then, and it was, it was hard to see their faces anyway. Did Did you think at the time it was her? Well, I no, I, I remember after when I, she gave me the tape, I thought before I, I go ahead and take this anywhere further, I'm going to see what's on it, and I didn't see anything on it that really had would have implicated anybody that from what I viewed anyway although it did come with this hair sample so I just kind of stuck it away and forgot about it right and and the other day I was going through my belongings and I came across this tape and I the fact that it had this hair sample and it made me think you know I wonder if this is the same tape that I got all those years ago. So to be clear Bob isn't sure if the tape he has found is the same tape he viewed all those years ago. And even if it is, he doesn't recall seeing anything on the tape which would be helpful in the investigation into Lisa's disappearance. And yet, there's that hair sample attached to the tape. It's strange, to say the least. Well, I, I, I kind of, it was a, I just kind of thought, like, I, I thought, well, maybe this might be the tape. And then when they started poking into Lisa's disappearance, I, I remember thinking, I says, I wonder what I did with that tape. And then I found it, like, tucked away in some of uh, stuff that I had in storage, some stuff that I had, you know, some belongings from way back when, and, and it was there. And I, when I seen the hair sample that came with it, it just kind of made me wonder. I said, I think I wonder if this is that tape that I, that I had. If it turns out there is something on this tape, and the hair turns out to be Lisa's, the providence of this tape will be important. I want to know more about the woman with lupus who Bob recalls giving him the tape and the hair. Yeah, with this lady, I mean, I, I had dealings with her. Her, her gig was uh, credit card fraud. And um, she used to go around and, uh, and get, buy stuff with um, fraudulent credit cards. That was her gig. And um, I just remember she, she handed me this tape claiming and, and she had associations with people like the back then it's bob's understanding that this woman is now deceased i ask him repeatedly to try and recall what was on the tape he viewed all he remembers is a distasteful homemade piece of pornography shortly after i speak with bob he hands over the tape and the hair to one of the officers on lisa's case Bob is right. It's a long shot. Even he can't be certain this tape is the same one he was given all those years ago. So, we are left with the core story, which has unfolded throughout this podcast. Lisa got into a vehicle with Christopher Adair, leaving behind friends at a late-night party. Later, she calls Dallas for help from the Red Jag. Come get me. They won't let me leave. Now, two of Nanaimo's former tough guys have stepped up and talked about what they believe happened after Lisa made that call. They have named names. The police are doing fresh searches. It is long past time for the conspiracy of silence to end and for everyone with hard information to come forward now. Please take a moment to rate and review Season 1 of Island Crime. Season 2 is coming soon, 
Subscribe now and you will hear a whole new investigation from the island. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus.